in Revelation, we've been going, we started the book of Revelation a couple weeks ago, and you had an introduction to the churches last week, and we're going to start specifically going through the churches in the next couple weeks. And so today, it's going to be chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the church in Ephesus. Um, I know in your bulletin, um, it talks about the church that God wants, and that's, that's a, I kind of changed it. That's the title I gave Marilyn earlier in the week, so that's not her typo, it's me changing things. As I began to kind of try to put the application part to what we're going to talk about today, I really saw that this, this letter, this part of the letter to this specific church in Ephesus, I feel like it's really, it's really addressed to people who've been in church for a while. Um, it's to people who may have been in church for a while and they've left church because church hurt them, church was bad, church became not a safe place. And I think this could give you a little bit of insight into why church becomes a place of pain for people. It's when the church loses its first love. Um, the church can do some great things in a community. A church specifically can do horrific things in people's lives when it loses its first love, which is Christ. And so we're going to see this image of a church that's filled with dedicated religious people who love God and love the word, but they're missing the point. They've lost it. And we're going to see they're very good at the head knowledge and they've become very bad at the heart knowledge. And we're going to see in a couple weeks, the church in Thyatira is the opposite. They're very good at the heart. They're very good at caring for each other, but they're doing it without the solid truth of the scriptures. And so we're going to see both of these sides of the coin in the next several weeks. And the church in Ephesus is a fantastic example of evangelistic fervor, They know God, they're going after the truth with everything they got, and they've missed the point in the middle of it. And so if you've been in church for a while, this might kind of poke you a little bit, which is fine because we all need that. And if you have been, if you're new to church and you're new to even this church, and you're wondering why sometimes churches seem like not okay places, I think you're going to get a window into why that is. Um, That even in the midst of the good that we're trying to do, Sometimes we miss the point. And church would be a perfect place if it wasn't filled with people. <laughs> Just like your marriage would be a perfect marriage if you were the only one in it. <laughs> Correct? And so church, it's why a lot of imagery in the scriptures are very much about how marriage and church and our relationship with Christ and the bridegroom, it gives us that image for a reason. Because we know that in our marriages and our relationships, we aren't always perfect. We aren't always right. But with a hope of the gospel at the center of everything, we get through all that stuff. And that's what we hope you see in this church in Ephesus. So to start, I'm going to give you a bit of a geography lesson. I know you love it when we do that. Um, But the church in Ephesus is in a very unique place geographically. And so when we see the seven churches, um, they're addressed in the book of Revelation in a clockwise manner, starting in Ephesus and going all the way around the horn to Colossus or to Laodicea, which is connected to Coloss in this city triplet we'll talk about in a few weeks. Uh, but Ephesus itself is in a harbor. And if you look at the geography along modern day Turkey, there are all these areas that could be okay, but maybe these, you know, all, I don't know if you know anything about boats, but you can't, if you have a large vessel loaded with Things you can't just pull it up into the sand like you do your little John boat when you're bass fishing or your canoe. That's why a canoe is a canoe because you can get it up close, you can get there, but you can't load a canoe down with hundreds of thousands of pounds of, you need a harbor, you need a deep water place for your ship that's full of supplies can get into. And so Ephesus became a very popular and important place because it has a deep water harbor and it's on a trade route that can take people along the coast. When you see all of this mountainous region, this is very hard to cross. And so if you're going to come from land, you're going to skirt the coastline all the way. So Ephesus becomes a place where land happens, land travel happens, and sea travel happens. Now Ephesus becomes a wasteland because this main river that flows down this valley is filled with silt. And it dumps into this harbor to where it becomes no longer a viable harbor. It's eventually, it slowly dies as a major metropolitan area. Think of New Orleans if they didn't dredge it out a lot all the time. The Mississippi River Delta fans out. Eventually that whole area, if they didn't do the things they did to maintain it, 
New Orleans couldn't be what it is, what it has been for the last several hundred years here if they weren't maintaining that and taking care of it. So it eventually dies off that way. But at the height of this letter being written, it's a massive central location for trade and commerce. It's huge. Um, when you look at it a little closer, you can kind of see this shape, this perfect horseshoe where ships can be. It's a protective spot. It's a place where you would hold up in the midst of storms. It's a, it's a place... It's a natural harbor where people are going to show up. Well, it's also a place where all that commerce leads to some massive buildings and infrastructure. <clears throat> the temple to Artemis was here, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, the temple to Artemis was massive. Um, and it had thousands of priests and priestesses. And one of the ways to worship in this temple was you would show up and you would pay for a, a temple prostitute but so it was a land of debauchery, a land of money, a land of physical wantonness. It was just this huge hotbed of travelers and sin, and it's crazy. That's the remains in the right corner there, kind of middle. That's the remains of the amphitheater that held 24,000 people. 2,500 years ago, you'd have up to 24,000 people hanging out. The War Memorial Stadium, the, the numbers I found, I'm, I don't know if that includes the wildcatter and all that, but... About 29,000 people can watch a UW football game. And so this was 20, this is at least 2,000 years ago where 24,000 people would come to an open air amphitheater to watch sport and play and all kinds of stuff. So this was a major metropolitan area. So Paul, you see in the book of Acts, he and Priscilla and Aquila, they show up in Ephesus to do a two year ministry. They're evangelizing, they plant a church, they're active in this community. Um, they are, the gospel's exploding in such a way that people stopped worshiping with the same fervor to the temple of Artemis. And a riot breaks out. The temple keepers, the people that are selling things for sacrifice, they are angry at the Christian church because they, the gospels had such an impact, it shifted the economy of a city. The sin economy shifts completely away. It would be like us um, planting a church in Las Vegas and then we have such an effect in the city that gambling diminishes, the showgirls diminish, and then they, the, the mob, I don't know if the mob runs Vegas or not, but I like to think that because I like watching TV and movies. And all of a sudden the mob shows up at the church to try to snuff us all out. I said snuff, that's an old mob term, right? Shows up to take us out because we as the church have stopped the profit from sin. That's pretty cool. Like that, that's one of, it's one of my goals as a pastor is to get death threats by people who are mad because the church has been so effective at stopping sin. I think that would be awesome. I don't know if my family or my wife wants that, but I think it'd be terrific to know that our church has had such an impact in the city of Laramie that people in the traffic of sin want me dead. That would be awesome because I want to just say, bring it. But that's a whole, anyway, that's all another thing. Okay. So we have this happening in this city of Ephesus where there's, there's, it's a, it's a, it's a hotbed of politics and culture and religion. And Paul plants a church there and it flourishes. We see the letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy. He's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. You see what he's dealing with. John then writes Revelation years, decades later, and we see that John, when he's freed from Patmos, ends up back in Ephesus as an elder at the church that he's, this letter is being written to. Amazing place. But it's also a place of deep sadness and deep pain. Uh, the philosopher Heraclitus was known as the weeping philosopher because he was a sad philosopher, a sad Greek philosopher. And his quote, the top one's his quote, the bottom one's a comment about him, that the people of Ephesus fit are fit only to be drowned. That that's how, this is, these are his, his kinsmen, his people, that they are a destructive lot and they should be destroyed. And so we see that the reason he couldn't laugh about them, he was a weeping philosopher, is because how unclean this city was. And Paul, through the inspiration of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, plants a church there to have an impact, and it has a huge impact. But then Jesus writes this letter to the churches and he has some issues with this church in Ephesus. He starts with saying who he is. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now remember, this is, most letters have that introduction. Paul says that, this is from Paul. And so this is Jesus putting his introduction. So when he, you, this letter is a letter from Jesus himself. Now there's, you know, we all feel things from Christ. We all feel like God's telling us to do things or I, you know, I have something I want to share with you, all that. But I've never gotten an actual a letter from Jesus. Well, other than this one. But like I've never gotten a, like a letter in the mail. That'd be pretty sweet. And so Jesus is saying to the church, like, this is from me. I'm the one who holds the church in his hand, the one that holds the, the seven churches that holds. This is the one who made you is writing this letter. So he puts his stamp of authority on the letter. This is not just from John. This is from me. So he puts that very clear at the beginning. And then he proceeds to tell them um, the good things they've done. He gives them the praise. He tells them what they're doing well. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So he tells them, you guys are really good at fighting for the faith. You're really good at, at, at smashing false teachers. They're very good at teaching the word of God, at following the word of God, at trying to live holy lives in light of the word of God. And he gives them praise for that. You, you know the word of God and you're doing it. You're doing fantastic in this. Even to the point where they're, 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 they're the ones um, testing false apostles. Jesus tells us in, I believe it's Mark 13. I have to go read my notes. But there, there's going to be a time when false prophets and false Christs will arise and will do wonders in my name, but they're actually pulling people away from the true faith. And these, this church at Ephesus is good at filtering through the garbage. And we have to be good at that. Like I've, I've told you time and time again, if you've been part of this church for any length of time, that anybody that comes to you and tells you, well, I think God says this, I think the Bible says this, and then you look at it and go, ah, that, when I read the whole counsel of Scripture, um, I don't think that it says that. I don't think that's okay. Well, but I listened to a pastor once. I read online once. That's my favorite. When someone like, comes with a theological question, or read online, and internally I go, here we go. But externally, because I'm a good person, I go, oh, really? What'd you read? And then we go from there. But you have to watch all that stuff because we can quickly begin to see things in the word of God that aren't there. Or we take one verse completely out of context, out of the whole council of scripture, and now we've built our whole theology around something that's not true. That's, that's terrifying. That's damaging. And so the church in Ephesus was really good at smashing these false apostles. Today it would be like, um, I'm going to make an example off the top of my head. It'll be awful, I'm sure. But... If someone, if I came to you as a church and I said, I have been reading in the scriptures that we are to go forth and multiply. And there's a passage in Genesis about I should fill my quiver. So I think it's time for me to add another wife to my house. You would all go, uh, I don't think that's what the Bible meant by that passage. Well, I read it. It says be fruitful, multiply. And a, a man is blessed when his quiver is full. So I need another woman so I can have lots of babies. And you would all go, that's not what the Bible says. Well, what you first say, the first thing your mouth is, hey, we're going to kill you. And it's, <laughs> we don't have to talk about this theologically. Like we're going to see you in an obituary quickly. That's, let's be honest. That's what's going to happen first. But what should happen second is, what is wrong with Mike? It's not what the Bible says. He took that passage completely out of context. Now, let's roll that into something that's a little more, and I'm not going to name them, and we're not going to go through them, but as I was kind of looking through this and studying it, it kind of hit me that most of the sins that we try to justify are sins of the flesh. Like, I don't get too many people coming to my office and saying, Mike, I know it says I'm not supposed to murder people, but my neighbor really needs to go. 
And the Bible says that I'm to be happy. And I want to be happy. And what would make me happiest is if my neighbor ceased to exist. So, murder's okay in the, in the Bible, right? No one does that. No one does that. No one comes and says, you know, I, I get that the Bible says don't steal, but I think God was wrong in that. Because I don't have things, and this person over here has things. And I want my happiness to be fulfilled, so I'm going to take their things. No one argues that. But what people do come and argue is they'll say, well... I'm just, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm, I'm not happy with her. And this one over here makes me happier. And I think God wants me to be happy. So I'm going to leave her and I'm going to go be with her. And the Bible's okay with that, right? And you will find people all day long that will say yes. Or... I have these desires, I have this in me, and it's just part of who I am, and I want to fulfill those desires because God made me this way, and that's okay, right? The church in Ephesus was really good about smashing all of that language. They said, no, that's not okay. No, that is not how this is. No, that's not what the word of God says. They were very good at that. You would come to them with a question. They spoke it into the community and it caused them to be ostracized, put in turmoil, thrown in jail, people rioting against them. They stood strong for the word of God. They stood strong for faith in Christ and Christ alone. And they were excelling at that. They were orthodox in their faith and evangelical in their expression of it. They professed the gospel They wanted people converted. They wanted people changed. They were amazing at this. They're the church that you would go to for Sunday school, Bible study, inductive Bible study. They'd help you understand the word. They were terrific at all of this. So what does Jesus have against them? He tells them, but I have this against you. And I called that a Baptist butt in the first service. It's just a Christian butt, but you... You see that all the time, right? I don't think this is a management 101 seminar. I think maybe this is where management people stole it. Say a good thing, say a bad thing, say a good thing. That's kind of what happens. We call that a certain kind of sandwich, but that's what we do, right? You have that in there. And so Jesus says, you're terrific at the word, but you're not very good at the heart. He tells them, this is what I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He tells them, you lost your first love. Now, some scholars argue this. They say the first love is a love of God. They've lost their love of God. They've lost their relationship of God. And then others argue that this means that in their religious zeal for the word of God, they stopped loving their neighbor. I think it's... The, I think you can't have one without the other. If you stopped your love of God, you stopped loving, you've stopped having that relationship, that intimate relationship with Jesus himself, then you're not probably going to be very loving to your neighbors. And if you're not very loving to your neighbors, it's probably indicative that you don't really have an affection for Christ anymore. Because now you're being mean to people. You don't have that love of Christ so, or love of your neighbor. So I think they go hand in hand. But this, this kind of fleshes out in two different ways. One is that you're not kind to people. Like people come into our church, come to the church in Ephesus. They come, they hear the word of God. They hear good biblical teaching. They hear great theology. They hear great like verse by like, oh, this is great. But then people are never kind. They never have a heart for each other. In the depths of your sin, I see you come in. I know a little bit about you. I get to know you a little bit. And so instead of, walking with you instead of having compassion for you instead of showing you the love of christ i just want to give you the list of the things that you're bad at and why you're an evil sinner this is these are the people that stand out somewhere with a protest sign to make sure everyone that drives by knows how evil and wicked they are and where they're going to go if they don't repent they're going to burn in hell if they don't repent but then when the person comes up to talk to them hey would you you help me? And I don't, I'm not, this is a gross generalization. They're really good at the protest sign, but how good are they building relationships with the very people that they are trying to get to know Jesus? Will they spend time with them? 
Or are they just going to stand out there at the picket sign and say, evil, evil, evil? Are they going to spend time with them? The church in Ephesus was really good at defending the faith. They'd grown sorely lacking in their compassion for their fellow people. Now think about the town they're in. Think about the community they're in. Everyone around them wants them dead. Everyone around them wants them gone. And I think there's been a lot of times the church in America has felt that. And so what we can, we can tend to do is we insulate ourselves. People around us don't like us. We're the ones who are pushing for the word of God to be known. We're the ones who are following what Jesus says in the Bible. We're not going to change with the culture. So we put a bubble around ourselves. And we say, we just need to keep ourselves safe. And you grow hardened to the people around you that you're trying to reach. Out of, out of a, a valid desire to protect yourselves from what's coming on the outside, you lose your heart for what's on the outside. That's what's happened in the church in Ephesus. They're great at Bible study. They're terrific. And I'm not saying not, don't do, please don't hear me go, Mike says not to do Bible study, quit reading my Bible and just go be kind to people. That is not what I'm saying. We're going to see the effects of that in Thyatira in a couple weeks. You have to have both. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you have to grow in your affection for your neighbors. You have to. Are you honestly going to sit down with someone that you've created a relationship with, you work with, they're in your family, they're your neighbor, and you're going to sit down with them in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their sin, and just point to a couple passages in Scripture and say, you need to fix this or you're in trouble. Let me know when you fix it, then we can be friends again. What a horrible way to live. Why do you think Jesus got in trouble with the Pharisees? Because the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that were the lowest in society, they loved to be with him and he was with them all the time. So who do you think you are by just putting yourself with a bunch of Ephesians? You better get over yourself. Now, let's be honest. There are certain things that all of us struggle with that we cannot walk into. If there are certain temptations, certain things you need to flee from, you have to take the whole counsel of scripture. If there are things that you need to flee from, then you can't be involved in those. Like I know people in this room that are, could walk into any watering hole establishment in this town. They would not struggle with the sin of alcoholism. They would not struggle with that. They could create relationships. They could be in those areas. And some of you should never be near them. Because that's a struggle you have, and it would be detrimental to your faith and to your witness to walk into areas that you struggle with. You don't do that. It's not, it's not a, a, a license to do whatever you want. It's saying that we have to have compassion for the people that are around us. Do you have that compassion? What I really, and I, I stole this from a commentary, I'm not that original. It boils down to how you approach Christ. The top is unbiblical. I obey, and Jesus accepts me. The bottom is the gospel. Jesus accepts me, and I gladly obey. They don't go together. They cannot go together. They're diametrically, biblically opposed to one another. If you came to faith, and you believed that it was all about obey, 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 follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, then Jesus will love me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you weren't taught properly. I'm sorry that someone didn't share the true gospel with you. I'm sorry. There are a lot of churches across the country that in their desire for holiness, for people to follow Christ, they've made it a task and a rule and a checklist. And on behalf of them, I apologize to you. That is not what the Bible says. We very clearly are captured by the truth of the gospel, by the grace of Christ, and because of salvation, because of the cross, because of how we're welcomed into the family of God in spite of ourselves, we then work hard to obey the commands of Christ, knowing that he's going to help us with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's going to do the work. And too often, churches hang out in the top. Or as you grow in your faith, you forget that you were saved by grace before you were perfect. If you are now, which we, I, I know a lot of you, you're not. You can't do it. Perfection is not possible. But instead, we love Christ because of what he's done for us on the cross. And because of that love, 
I desire holiness. I desire to be better. I desire not to struggle with things. I, I desire to fight the flesh. I want to be more like Christ and less like my sinful beginnings. But I'm not going to make complete success at that until he comes home or I die. And until that happens, we're in the fight. And the church in Ephesus lost that. They were really good at the task and they forgot that you obey out of the love of Christ. I believe that they stopped abiding in Christ. They stopped enjoying an experience, a relationship with Christ, and instead they focused on the checklist, which honestly is easier. It's way easier than a relationship where my heart goes against Christ. He loves me anyway. I got to change. If you just give me the checklist, we're all good at the checklist. I mean, just think, think about all of our marriages. If you just got an instruction manual at marriage and there was a checklist, if I did these seven things, then everything is wedded bliss, you would do the seven things. It's not that hard. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. Done, easy. That's not how it works. It's two hearts entwined in a relationship filled with love, frustration, passion, pain, and beauty. And it's amazing and it's a gift from God. That's the relationship we have with Jesus. You come to faith, you don't want the sin, you want it gone, you give it to Christ, you have success. Then you have failure. Then you, you mess up and you don't know and you learn something different. Ten years after walking first down an aisle to accept Christ or to in a, on a couch or driving down the road, you, begin to, you love Jesus, you think you're on the track and then you completely sidestep it. Oh, I'm awful. And Jesus says, I love you anyway. I didn't stop loving you. I loved you on day one. I'm going to love you on day 3001. And everything you do in the middle, yeah, it's going to stink. Yeah, I'm not happy with it. Yeah, I wish you wouldn't do that, but I'm never stopping loving you. So get that out of your head. We obey Christ because he loved us first, not because we're trying to earn something. That is a futile, frustrating, awful way to live your faith out. You won't find joy there. You find joy knowing that Jesus likes you. He actually enjoys being with you. And he wants to be with you a lot. We continue. He gives them the answer. He says, you've abandoned your first love. So how do I get my first love back? He first tells us to remember. Remember. Remember when you first came to Christ. Remember that moment. Now, some of you grew, have grown up in the church. I know the, I don't know the date. I could find it. I know the day in which I became a Christian. It was my senior year, Easter Sunday. Pretty cliche, but I'm okay with that. Some of you have been walking with the Lord since you were really little. So for Jesus to say, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, he's not saying, like, he's calling us to remember Remember the height of your faith. Remember when it made the most sense. Remember when it, it gelled. Remember when it, it was most real to you. It, you've grown stale. You've grown distant. You've grown curious. You're, you're frustrated. You don't understand. It's, you don't get it. But do you remember when it made sense? What was happening when it made sense? Remember that moment. Remember when it, it really did click. And then he says, then Repent. Repent. Go before the Lord. Like, I've, I know you, Jesus. We've been friends a long time. You saved me years ago. I've been, I've been away. I've been distant. I haven't talked to you much. I haven't opened up the word much. I haven't really spent any time in prayer. I've been living my life my own way. and It's not working. I, just please help me. Help me. You Repent. Repentance just means, in Greek, it means to make a, a reverse, to turn around. To repent says, I'm going this direction, and I want to go this direction. I want to run. I want to flee from that. So you go before the Lord and say, I remember how good it was. I want that again, and I need to turn away from what I'm doing now and get back there. Help me, Lord. Help me to do that. And then you go back to doing the things you know work. Do the works you did at first. Do you remember? I, I rem, maybe you don't. I keep saying that. 
I remember when I first came to Christ, I'm 17 years old, had this overwhelming personal moment taking communion. It was this, I felt love like I'd never felt before. And then I started reading my Bible and I was voracious. Like I'd always, I've always been a reader, reading and reading and reading. Like I, I had, I have told you this before, it's still in my office. I had this Bible where someone gave me the tabs to like put the stickers because it was like this Bible and I didn't know where things were. And no one told me that it's okay when you don't know where books of the Bible are to just look at the index that's in the front of your Bible, that that's not a sign of weakness when you can't find it. I mean, to this day, like you get into some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, I'm like, where's that? I gotta, I just go to the index. There's a page number for a reason. Use it. And I felt I got to know it. So I had all the tabs and I put all the stickers in. I spent forever doing that and I'm reading it and I'm reading and I'm reading. And I started to have questions. I felt like I was a loser. I didn't understand because I questioned some stuff and I didn't ask people the questions I had. I tried to find it myself in the Bible. I couldn't find them easy. I didn't know the scriptures. It wasn't good. There were people around that would have helped. There were people around that would have shown me. People around that would love to have that conversation with me, but I, I didn't. Fast forward about six years later, I was around people who would answer those questions. I was confident asking those questions. And I, I remember being turned on to the study of scripture because I was around people that showed me how and they were willing to answer my questions or at least walk with me. They didn't really have answers. They just walked with me and affirmed that I was on the path of getting answers. I remember that. So I go, and if I get to that place today, I'm not, God feels distant. I'm not sure. I can't find the, I know what to do. Dig into the word. Ask some wise people. Do you, where's this at? Do you see this? Where's this? Do you remember how to do that? That's what Jesus is trying to get this church to see. Repent and do the work you did at first. Do the work you did at first. Go back to that childlike faith. Whether it's a 17-year-old child like I was or a literal three, four-year-old that professes a faith in Christ. It's really dangerous when we do our faith via Wikipedia and YouTube. It's really dangerous. You will find everything under the sun on those resources that will go so far outside of Scripture. It's why you need people around you to help you with those things. If I showed up in a Bible study in this church, if Isaac's hanging out with me, if Craig's hanging out, you know, if you've got, there's, and I bring up some crazy theological twist, they're going to look at each other and go, uh, something's wrong with Mike. Or if I, I think this, they're going to go, no, that's not what it says, Mike. But I read this and I think like, no, no, I don't think so. How many times have you been in a Bible study or been in a Sunday school class or asked a friend and you said, I think God's saying this here. And they go, that's interesting. But this is really what's going on there. And I remember reading this and they're like, oh, thanks. That's their kind way of saying, you're a fool. I'm going to lovingly correct you. And we're going to go forward together because I like you. You've got to have that in your life. If it's you alone with a Bible and an internet connection, you can go in crazy directions. And we see, I mean, Jesus then addresses this with the next thing. Here's how you come back. Repent. Remember, repent. Do the things that you know how to do. Then he brings up the Diocletians. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the the Neocletians, Neocletians, which I also hate. So he starts off with, you're really good at testing the apostles. Go back to your first love. Please have a relationship with me. Abide in me. And we collectively hate these people which is a very strong word to see in the scriptures. It's, usually, it's very much reserved for false teachers who are taking all kinds of people astray. We don't know a lot about the Diocletians. Um, they're only mentioned a couple times, and there's not a lot of writing outside the Bible about them. We believe they're closely connected to the Gnostics, which were, um, more or less, they were, they pushed a sensual faith. That it was about flesh and how you feel and what's, what feels good, do good. Today we would say you do you kind of thing. That kind of language would come out, hashtag, whatever you want to call it. But that's what it would say. And they were taking people away from the truth of scripture. 
that there wasn't there wasn't a a Bible to go to. There wasn't you couldn't clearly define what's in the scriptures. You must figure it out on your own and do what feels good to you. That kind of stuff was going around. That's the Neocletians. It's the Gnostics. Um, today we would, I mean, anybody that has their own TV show or their own advice column or editorial column, even in our local boomerang, um, writes things about that are just so far from what you know about scripture, they could, you could lump them into this category. That they're trying to get people to see that what feels good and how you, how, how you want it is okay. It's Burger King, have it your way. Will you make your own faith? That's still Burger King, right? Okay. Like you could do those things. And you just Whatever you want, you do it. God loves you. God made you. He gave you a brain. He gave you these desires. Just go for it. And everything's going to be fine in the end. And the church in Ephesus smashed those kinds of thinking. And Jesus is commending them in it. But again, in their fervor, they forgot their first love. They forgot to abide in Christ. They forgot to have that relationship in a personal way with Jesus. And so these are things we're still dealing with today. We still deal with it today. People will twist the word of God so that it will say what they want it to say. I I wish, as a pastor, I think I have a pretty compassionate heart. Some days it's more compassionate than others, but I have a pretty compassionate heart. I don't want anyone, I believe in the truth of hell. I believe in eternal separation from God. I believe that it is going to be a very bad place and forever is a very long time. And out of my passionate desire for no one to go there, there are days when I wish there are parts of the scripture that didn't exist because it would be much easier to share the gospel if it wasn't for the holiness that we see in the scriptures. But I cannot go against the word of God. I will not go against the word of God. So even though it leads to hard conversations, difficulty in relationship, I must profess the truth of Christ no matter what. But if I don't do that with a heart of compassion, I'm a fool. I'm a leader in the church in Ephesus with great head knowledge and zero compassion for my neighbor. And I've told you time and time again, if you become that and I find out about it, you will answer to me. If, I, if in this community I find out that the members of my church are really good at t- pointing out sin with no compassion, we will have problems. You must lead with the gospel, the good news. And when you have been given permission to speak into people's lives, you begin to share the truth. Sometimes it happens in an instant. Sometimes it happens over time. You must have a compassionate heart. That's what the church in Ephesus was lacking. Even though they're very good at calling out false teaching. Lastly, he tells them, he who has an ear, this is his ending to this part of the letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he says, if you do this, turn back to your first love. I will set a seat at the table for you. To eat from the tree of life. I don't know what that fruit tastes like, but I bet it's yummy. That at the end, you get to be in the garden Adam and Eve messed this up. The restoration of the Garden of Eden. I get to sit at the table and eat of the choice fruit from the tree of life. I've never eaten from that. I want to eat from that. But for me to get there, to to receive the prize, is to be saved by the grace of God and then to abide in him. Enjoy relationship with him. Do you love to spend time with Jesus? And if you were honest in church, which I don't know if any of you can be, most of you would go, Ugh, Bible study stinks, praying by myself. Ugh, you're missing it. That is not the only way to have time with Jesus. You're missing it. So how do you do this? Well, I'm going to give you a couple examples from my life. Uh, don't worry about that. 
you need to stir your affections for Jesus. For a long time, I divided the things that I love to do and the things in my faith. Faithful things. I go to church. I serve in the church. Um, I have a prayer list that I look at at least once a day, sometimes more than that. Um, I do the yearly read through the Bible plan. Um, Some days I get behind and I do a whole lot of reading on like a Friday, catching up for the week. Like I have those things going on. And, you know, I, I, I put money in the offering plate. Like I'm doing it. I'm getting it done. And it just feels, eh. I'm doing the tasks, I'm making it happen. I love all the parents. That, Wait, is, that, is that my child's cry? <laughs> There's a whole lot of parents just went, hmm. Um, the, I, you're, none of those are bad. We should do those things. Those are great spiritual disciplines. I, I'm not saying don't do those. But if that becomes stale and it lacks, have you ever thought about that? that God has wired you in such a way to find joy in certain things that fill your tank. That there's certain things in your life that fill your tank, that bring a smile to your face, that bring great joy to your life. Have you ever thought that maybe you could just invite Jesus to come along in those? Instead of saying, well, here's my Jesus time. Well, I go to church, I got my Bible, I got my, I really like to fly fish. But here's my Jesus time. Got to have my Jesus time. Got my Jesus time. Now I'm going to put my Bible down. And I'm going to go over and get my fun time. I got my hobbies that are fun over here. Did you ever think about just taking Jesus with you? He kind of hung out with fishermen. He'll like to hang out with you. Have you ever, like, the, the, the things he's wired you for that bring you great joy, bring Jesus along with you in that pursuit. And when you do that, you bring Jesus along with you in that pursuit. It fills your tank so that then you do go to things that are, let's be honest, they're more disciplined. There's a joy in reading the word of God, but there's also a discipline that comes with it. And because I see Jesus in the word and I see Jesus on the mountain, then I come. But what we do as a, as a people is we, we rob both. I only see Jesus here or I say, well, I don't like to read the Bible I just love when fall rolls around, I spend time in the mountains, and that's, that's my church. I don't disagree. But you can't leave the word of God at home. Take it with you to the mountains. Bring Jesus along with you in all the things you love to do. Do you not think he wants to, you to joyfully experience and embrace all the things that he wants for you? If he made all of this and he made you, you don't think he made it for your pleasure and your enjoyment? I won't get into this today, but I firmly believe in John Piper's idea of being a Christian hedonist. That we are to embrace everything that we have in Christ. Do we are to enjoy him now and forever. And he wires you certain ways. And then one of the beautiful things is once you understand that this is a way he's wired you and you bring Jesus along with you and your hobbies and you see that my hobby and my discipleship and my life and my family is all for Christ. Everything becomes a place of joy. Everything. For me, I, I, I do like alone time. I do. I'm wired that way. I'm wired for seasons of quiet. Um, I grew up as a kid loving to read books and I was alone in my books. I mean, we only grew up with three TV channels, so there's not a lot to watch anyway. Um, and you can only watch Walker, Texas Ranger so many times. And every time is amazing. Don't deny that. I'm a little concerned about the reboot. I have high hopes, but it's not Chuck Norris. So I'm not sure. So I grew up in a lot of quiet, and I love that. But then once you grow to a place where you enjoy something, it is, it's a joy above joy to then introduce someone else to the thing that you enjoy. It's a thing of beauty. And if you grow in your affection for Christ and then you bring someone along, it increases your joy. Just this last week, um, I mean, there's things that I enjoy in my life in some pretty big ways. I really like food. I love food. I really love food. (laughs) And there's a spot. I have the joy of helping with the men's ministry and we go to San Diego once a year or so. And so there's a place um, on Coronado Island, the Day and Night Cafe. It's this little hole in the wall. There's a couple other restaurants down the road from it, but this is my favorite. Um, and this is the Hector Special. And I order it at least once 
or three times every time I'm there. You go to the gym at six in the morning, you eat this big pile of food at seven, and then you get your day on. It's perfect. It's a shrimp omelet covered in pepper jack queso and hash browns, and oh, I love it. And I enjoy eating it by myself. I don't need people. I don't need friends. I enjoy eating this meal. I'm there to eat the meal. I'm not there to talk to the employees. I'm not there to, I love this food. But I was leading a small group and I was able to take three guys and go and help. They went with me to enjoy the place I love to eat. And I talked it up for two days. We've got to hit this place. So they're all standing outside the room at eight in the morning. Let's go. Let's get in the car. They're all pumped. And I got to bring them along. Like how many times have you had great conversation and gr- over good food? You set the table with good food and a good evening. And if you're permitted by the Lord, good drink. And like you just have like, it's good. It's okay by yourself. But it's so good with people. So good. I, I, great joy comes from my family. I love my family. I love being with them. I love being around them. There's times I want to be away from them, but I love them. I love them. Like it is a joy that God has given me, my wife and my children. They are a joy. I am better because of them in my life. I'm better. If I was alone in my parents' basement, in my 40s, I would not be better. I wouldn't. I would have been a complete... God gave Amber to me as a gift at the end of my senior year of high school as I was about to make some decisions that were going to lead me in a whole different road. And if I didn't have her at the time that God gave her to me, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know what would have happened. Um, I, I love Come Thou Fount. I think that's the right song where I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to wander. And Amber is an anchor in my life. And if I didn't have her at 17, almost 18, I don't know where I would be. I don't think I would be a pastor right now. I don't know that I would be walking with Christ. So she's a gift. Do you see the people around you? Do you see them as a joy? If you abide in Christ, your relationship with Christ, and your abiding relationship with Christ grows, you'll see the people around you in that way. Um, I I do like, since I've moved here to Wyoming, um, we've enjoyed the mountains together. Like, I'll never forget climbing Medsimbo Peak for the first time with them. I did it with Amber once, but with my family, it's a joy. But if all I did was go to the mountains and go, well, you know, they're cool mountains, they're fun, it's I got a picture I did it for the gram or whatever you young people say. Like that's, right, I'm gonna do that. But instead, like I'm up there on the top of this mountain in awe of God. For me, something that's great for my faith is to be in places where I feel really small. Because I have a tendency to arrogance. I have a tendency to think that I'm the smartest guy in the room and I'm not. And so for me and my faith and my, my own walk with Christ, it's good for me to be in places where I feel very small. When we prayed, what's the next step? We're leaving West Virginia. We knew it was time to leave. I, we, I prayed that God would put us near the mountains because they give me so much joy. They fill my tank and I, I meet God in the mountains. And he blessed us with Laramie, Wyoming. And so, yes, it's fun. It's an adventure. We have a memory, but I have a passionate pursuit and I brought people along and I meet God there like that. That helps me abide in Christ. It helps me. In the last couple of years, as my kids are getting older, like I'm not a very good hunter, um, but I'm taking my boy along with me to learn bad habits. Um, I fail at hunting a lot. I want to be good at it, but I'm not that good. I can pull a trigger, but finding the animals is a little harder than what I anticipated. Um, I love hanging out with my daughter in the mountains. Like I only get my kids for about 18 years, maybe 16, and that's when they stop listening to me. I, I, I got a precious gift of my kids for 16 to 18 years 
am I going to trust God? Am I going to abide in him? Am I going to spend every waking moment? Am I going to be with him? Am I going to bring God along in my parenting? Am I going to? I got to. Because then they're gone. I love my family. I love my friends. I love being able to take people on those adventures and be, I love experiences. And every one of those are because God has been brought along into that mix. Do you abide in him in every part of your life? The church in Ephesus missed it. They brought Christ into the head knowledge, they brought Christ into the church, they brought Christ into the defending the word of God, which is where he needs to be, but they left him out of their hearts. And Christ warns them, I will remove your lampstand. I will crush your church. I will crush your influence. If you don't turn back to your first love, abide in me. Abide in me. So your homework for the week, what fills your tank? If I get this to work. What stirs your affections for Christ? What causes you to love him in deeper ways? And then are you sharing that with other people? Quit thinking of church as just growing a bunch of knowledge and then going out and evangelizing. And instead, think of church as a place to grow in deeper affection with Christ, to have your hobbies, your passions, your pursuits be married with the truth of God in the word of God and then take that out into the world. We see in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that because of the gospel that we see in Romans 1 through 11, 12, 1 and 2 tells you your whole life is an act of worship. Your whole life is an act of worship. Do you love the king in that kind of way? If you do, then you won't fall prey to what the church in Ephesus did. You will love him. And he'll use you in some amazing ways to reach others. So do some homework. What fills your tank? Then run after it and bring Jesus right along with you. You will change and so will others. I promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this encouragement and this correction that we see to the church in Ephesus. I pray, Lord, that yes, we would pursue a right knowledge of the word and understanding that goes beyond cultural pressure and beyond what people want and think and feel. And instead, we would chase with a passion <coughs> the truth we find in your word. But Lord, I pray we would never have hardened hearts, that we would just want to put knowledge out to people. And instead, we would lead with compassion. And out of that compassion and love, we could then have permission to speak truth. It's how you approach us. You don't teach us all about yourself and then save us. You save us in an instant and then we spend our lives learning more and more about you. Help us to have that same kind of heart for those around us. We love you. Amen.